I wasn't an Olympian, not because I didn't want to be. Uh, I really don't know any player in their prime that was 13 more NBA, defensive player of the year, all-star, that never got invited to the Olympics. I never got invited. It got to a point where I was waiting. I know it was coming, you know. And I'm like, hold on, they really not calling. I called the office. I'm like, how does this process work? <laughs> So I remember exactly where I was on November 19th, 2004. I was freezing my ass off in State College, Pennsylvania, because I was there covering a Penn State football game. I was hanging out in some bar when I looked up on ESPN and saw my next guest barrel into the stands and start mollywhopping people. Uh, Now, the Palace Brawl between the Pacers and Pistons became a watershed moment in NBA history. But just as we have a much different understanding of that episode today, my guest on this podcast, Meta World Peace, has a much different understanding of himself. He's up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. So as much as people associate my guest today with the brawl that took place between the Pacers and Pistons almost 15 years ago, damn, I'm old. Uh, Anyway, there is so much more to Meta World Peace's story. He's a favorite son of Queensbridge, an NBA champion, a mental health advocate. He is evolution personified. And he's got a new documentary on Showtime that premieres May 31st called Quiet Storm, which covers his upbringing. And sometimes, you know, his turbulent NBA career. Uh, There's a lot to digest and process in this film, but Meta is, as always, refreshingly honest. Here's a clip of him describing what it was like the first time he tried to sell crack cocaine. I learned how to cook crack, learned how to cut up the cookies and stuff. I said, cool, here we go. (laughs) I remember making my first sale. It was a crackhead who would always come and buy it from my family. I remember giving the crackhead the money and just running back in the house. How does it feel to have your own documentary? Originally, I didn't want to do it. You know, prior to this, I did an autobiography. And everybody's like, you should do it because, you know, it's going to help with exposure. It's going to help tell your story. I'm like, I don't care. You know, the business I'm in now, like, I try to be behind the scenes. I was already on the front when I was in my career, you know, always being in trouble. So I'm, I try to do as many things as possible to be off camera. My my partner of 13 years, uh, Heidi Bush, was like, let's do the autobiography. Let's do the documentary. It's going to be great. Um, so they and both, both projects came out amazing. Um, it's a little too much for me. You know, uh, I watched it and it's like, oh, boy, I got to relive these moments. And then... When I was in these moments, the people I was affecting, we never sat down together. So we never experienced those moments together. I never know how they felt. They didn't know how I was feeling. On the on 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 TV screen, you get a chance to see everything, how people was really feeling. You know, um, Donnie Walls, Jermaine O'Neal, Steven Jackson, you know, uh, and it was just like um, a little too much for me. So you weren't thinking it from the perspective that by telling your story, how many other people could relate to it and maybe you could even help? I wasn't thinking about it like that. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm trying to help people, I do things like community basketball events, um, giving back 
uh, to mental health institutions or uh, showing up, you know, to women empowerment programs or, or hiring mostly women, you know, at my companies. Uh, now I hire men before I had all women. It was really bad. Now you're trying to balance it out I the other way. I have to balance it out. I have to. <laughs> Too much estrogen for it's you. It's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair. I don't, it's like, well, I have no men. Like, it's crazy. So my wife brought it to my attention when we got married. She was like, you need to get some men around. But <laughs> I do things like behind the scenes. I didn't think like I needed to do a doc, but the doc, you know, it's it's a, I think it's really touching and inspiring. Now, um, you just said a second ago that you had not been able to experience some of these moments together or for that matter, see how you affected others. I think one of the more surprising things um, or I don't even know if the word surprising is Jermaine O'Neal, your relationship with him. Yeah. And while I was a reporter during this time, yeah. I remember watching that, watching the, the, the brawl at the palace live on television, um, being from Detroit and a Pistons fan, we were, you know, yeah. watching every game because they were so successful at that time. But I don't think um, it, I realized how fractured your relationship with Jermaine O'Neal was. And, even now, to some degree, he still doesn't seem to be completely over everything. Of course, of course. Now, you guys... Um, we never built a relationship. Yeah, you never built a relationship. It took you 14 years to talk. To have lunch. To have lunch. We never had lunch. You, we never you, had dinner. You ne oh, And you had not had it the entire time as teammates. Never. Like, never. No. So, why did it take so long for you all to talk to one another after everything that happened with the fallout from the brawl, which we'll talk a little bit more about in yeah. a minute. Why did it take so long? Well, for me, I, was, I always couldn't wait to get home because I had my first baby at 16, 17, and then, uh, and, and she was my first, my, my, my wife at the time. When I got to college, you know, you started to see other women, and in my community, it was only black women, so maybe some Latinos. When you get to college, you start to experience different things, and you, you know, as a 17-year-old in college, it's like, uh, I might want to experience something else. So then I, I got into another relationship in college, you know, um, which was the second person I've been with, you know. And going into the NBA, I had a baby. And then I had another baby in 99 when I left college. So everything was crazy at this point in my life, you know. And then um, a year later in 2001, in the NBA, I made a baby with the lady I was uh, seeing in college, which... Um, and Jerron Artest, a really brilliant, smart kid. You know, I love him. He's going to UC Irvine. He's super smart. Um, so then at that point, I wasn't really 100% in that relationship with the mother of my son, Jerron. So then I got out of that relationship and back with, you know, my ex, my, my, my first. We had another baby, mm -hmm. right? So for me, I'm trying to jug that. That was like the bulk of my life right there. It was very stressful my first couple of years. I'm like, I want to be a good dad, but I'm only 21, 23, with four kids now at this point. <laughs> you know, trying to do some things. There's no way. So I was just always wanting to go home. I was never. My mind was never in in the game. I went home. I worked out hard. All star. I was. I was a really good player, but mentally I wasn't there. So um, did you feel that tension from Jermaine when you were teammates that that yeah. he? You know, he, he admitted that there were times that he frankly hated you. I did. I, you know what? You can feel it because, so my main friends was people from my hood. And I felt like, I felt, I felt like I always wanted to keep those friends. And I felt like I didn't have time for other friends. When I got to the NBA, I came into the NBA with my friends. You know, it should have been with just my family, but I was moving my friends and family, everybody in the house. It was crazy. 
I never reached out. Jermaine would always reach out. My teammates would always get together, but I never felt like teammates could be friends. You know, I felt like it was just job. It would just work, you know, but at the end of the day, we're all there for the same goal, and I just never treated her like that. Now, um, how did you feel when you saw on, in this documentary, In Quiet Storm, Jermaine talk about the animosity he felt towards Man. you and about how, you know, it was hard for him when you won with the Lakers to yeah, even yeah. feel happy for you? Hey, I, I, you know, and it makes sense because when I won, I felt guilty. I, the first people I thanked at the interview was the Pacers, <laughs> you know, so it makes sense. Like, um, and I didn't speak to Jermaine during that time anyway, but I'm like, I just want to thank these people because they were very special in my life. Every time I would go through something, Jermaine would be like, hey, hey, hey Ron, you all right? Always checked on me, you know, and I would be like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good, you know, and just go home. And I felt a little bit sad because, you know, Jermaine's a really good friend. He's a loyal, loyal friend. Jermaine, Al Harrington. Al Harrington's probably one of the best friends you can have. You know, Steve Jackson's also. I don't want to compare them, you know. Um, and they always reached out. Al Harrington, always, every time I would go through something in practice, Al Harrington, Jermaine O'Neal, Steve Jackson, always, always got my back. Jamal Tinsley, you know, it, really everybody. On the organization. Even though it it, uh, it it wasn't necessarily supposed to be funny, but one of the moments in this doc is when Steven Jackson, uh, who I got a chance to work with at ESPN, <laughs> when he <laughs> he said after this massive brawl takes place at Auburn Hills um, at the Palace, you guys are sitting in the locker room and you looked over to, I think it was him, and was said, him, yeah. hey, you think we're going to be in trouble after this? It was him. <laughs> it was him. It was him because... Steven's crazy and I'm crazy and that's the only person I feel like at this point that can understand what I'm going through. Jermaine's, a, you know, Jermaine is a, we had a lot of dogs on that team. But at that, at that particular time, you know, I asked Steve because I was like, oh my goodness, am I, is my career over? I, I was asking myself these questions and I just, I just needed to confirm it. And he, he confirmed it. And you, and you, you thought it was over, right? Or, I, I kind of I knew like this was really bad. Mm -hmm. I knew I wasn't, it wasn't my fault, but I knew like this can't happen. You know, it 100% wasn't, I 100% didn't initiate that that whole event. Do you think people now, because especially when you look at some of the spotlight and the scrutiny that, frankly, fans are under, uh, because now we're much more aware of fan behavior because of cell phones and cameras. Do you think more people side with you now as opposed to then? I think then they did, just to have as much media at, when it happened, it was ESPN, and that was it, and, and a couple of news outlets. But ESPN was reporting every day, killing me, and that's what people were taking in as a viewer. So if you're getting your news from a certain outlet, you're going to be a, a influenced by that. Very similar to fashion. If Kim Kardashian says, yo, wear this shirt, you're going to buy that shirt. People were saying Ronald Tess is a bad person. So... A lot of people was believing that, and then also, you know, uh, people was had their own opinion. But then you had people out there that was like, yo, I would have did the same thing. I didn't realize it was that many people out there that thought like that. So at that point, I felt everyone, everyone was against me. And just to explain to people, because uh, we do have some children who were maybe not uh, of age or didn't realize what was happening. But we're talking, of course, about the um, the infamous palace brawl that took place between the Pistons and the Pacers 2004. And uh, people, in, you know, as you know, I'm from Detroit, people in Detroit don't like to admit this. But yeah. because of that, you know, that set the trajectory of the Pistons in a 
different direction yeah. in, a, in a much better direction. It's sort of like the the main foe, which was the Pacers, was eliminated yeah, yeah, after yeah. that. And so the franchise they won a championship that they year. They won a championship that year. Actually, no, they won it the they year won it before the year, that. The year before that, and then they went back, they went and, back. and lost to the Spurs. I really helped them out a lot with my dysfunction. <laughs> I definitely did. <laughs> well, one player who used to get under your skin, um, I guess to get a little inside basketball, was Rip Hamilton. Why did Rip get under your skin so much? Rip, Rip he, he never really got under my skin, but that one particular, everybody got under my skin. So it's not just Rip. Anybody, it could be the last player on the bench, the coach, a fan, it don't matter. I'm attacking anyone who says anything. At that point in time in my career. You know, but I remember that one possession in the playoffs, it was um, it was tied up and it was just the dumbest the dumbest thing I ever did. Like, he, he hits me in a grown area. And, 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 it's, and it's on camera, you know, which the referees did a really bad job. You know, they... It was a slick veteran move. It was that he very pulled. slick, yeah. but you you know, as a referee, you know, uh, sometimes the game moves too fast. They never, but you know, it was on camera. Then he hit me in my grown area. Then I elbow him in the face. You know, but I'm not thinking about the championship. I'm always think at that point. I'm always thinking about fighting. I'm always like on edge. Um, and then I try to change my ways. That was the year before the brawl. And then I said, I gotta, you know, I can't, I can never let this happen again. That's when I really started to go into that therapy. You know, that's why with me and Ben Wallace was was uh, in that altercation. I'm just like, I'm trying not to, you know, take it there. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so is that when you realized, or what? I mean, maybe it was a, a series of moments, but what was it that made you realize that you needed, you know, to seek professional help? Uh, well, the, the game was so important to me. Like basketball is everything to me, and my mind wasn't there when I'm going to work, and I'm upset. Going to a place that I love is like it's a, it's a major problem. Not being happy there, going home, not not being happy. Not that I'm not happy being home, just like I'm not happy with my life, my mind, mental state. It's just it's just crazy at this point, you know. So I, I say I, something needs to change, and I need to take the initiative. And I knew it wasn't going to happen overnight. And you know, gradually over time, I made I continue to make mistakes. I continue to improve. I continue to make mistakes. Mistakes continue to improve. It seemed like that you also had some kind of residual anger issues from your childhood. A little bit. Yeah. Were you always somebody who did have kind of that, that anger bubbling even when you were in high school? Because it seemed like that yeah. was, a, it was an issue then too. Well, well, when I got divorced and actually when I was going through marriage counseling, we, and that was in 2005, and I had a domestic uh, incident with my ex-wife at the time. When we got marriage counseling provided by the NBA, by the way, NBA was very supportive. We opened up wounds when I was kids. And then what I, what I realized was um, my mom and dad, before I was born, they met. But my mom didn't know my dad needed medication. My dad didn't want to say, I, I'm on medication. So he was taking it. But then when she got pregnant, he went off the medication. So, I, so at that whole point in time, I got a lot of stories that happened that was kind of leading up to the point where I can remember Six years old, seven years old. I can remember those times. So we started piecing everything together, you know. So that leads me to say in kindergarten, I got suspended my first year, not even in kindergarten, in nursery. In nursery, I had a fight. I was, they said, suspended me from nursery. Every year I was in school, I was suspended. All the way up until college also. In college, I was also, I got in trouble. And in the NBA, you know, I was in a Catholic school. I actually didn't get suspended my last three years in Catholic school, but my freshman year I got suspended for 13 games. You know, so I was always like on edge. 
what could you have possibly done in nursery school to get suspended? Fighting. Fighting. You know, just somebody bothering you in your fight. <laughs> and they kick you out of nursery school. Yeah. And I, I, was, I was eight years old. I was in second grade, and I punched one of my teachers in the face. You know, it was just reckless, reckless kid, reckless kid. Now, when you would get into those incidents when you were younger, like, what would your family members say to you? I would get a butt whooping. <laughs> so that kept me in a little bit of line. <laughs> you know, um, like I wouldn't, I had, one, I had one, one time I threw a chair at a referee. I was like, I don't even know, 10 years old to 12 years old. He was a cop too. They tried to arrest me. But um, when I got my last real butt whooping, then I would get smaller butt whoopings. But I stopped doing over the top stuff. But I was still getting in trouble. But the butt whoopings definitely like kept me in line because it could have easily went south. Mm. Yeah, you said you stopped doing over the top stuff. I believe there's a there's a story in the doc about you throwing somebody down some bleachers. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. But you want to know something? At that time, when, when I did that, you know, my dad they stopped spanking me at like I guess fifteen <laughs> or maybe fourteen. Maybe you fourteen. Probably got a little too big. I'm guessing. Yeah, you know, I'm like it's not hurting as much. <laughs> yeah, right. I remember the last time my mom hit me, it was just like it didn't hurt, <laughs> and she just said, "Okay, whatever." <laughs> But yeah, I, I got a little upset at this one kid. R really nice guy. We just got into an altercation, and we was at ASU, uh, Arizona State, and um, yeah, we had a fight, and I just pushed him down a bunch of flights, uh, bleachers. It was bad. Do you think that some of the uh, violence that uh, you, and you've discussed this before that you saw between your parents, like how much do you think that impacted how I you think looked that at a lot. it? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely, because the fights in the neighborhoods. If somebody's shooting outside or somebody's shooting at each other, that's not really going to affect you unless you get shot or unless somebody pulls a gun out on you. Because you can always go home and you feel comfort in your home. Something just happened with you with your mom and dad. But the fights inside, that can make you more upset. You know, so I was always fighting with these two people. One that was like a kid that wanted that comfort from the, from the mom and dad when something was happening outside. Maybe I was getting bullied and I go home. And that my safe zone, also, it wasn't a safe zone. You know, so then I got to take things into my own hand. And I don't even know how to deal with the streets at this time. You know, I, I remember somebody taking my lot. I was at the pool. These kids pushed us to the bench. And they sat us there, I remember. And they um, said, don't move, like a dog. And I remember, I'm like, oh, if we move, we're going to get beat up maybe. I was like 12 or 13. You know, so I don't even know how to really handle myself at this point. You know, so it, then it came to a point in time where I got tired of it. I, then, then I had to develop allies, you know, in the streets. And now, you know, we good now, right? And like nobody's going to come mess with my crew because we, we don't really care. You know, and often it was younger guys. You know, I remember I, I would always deal, work with, you know, I would always be friends with the 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, because I know, like, you know, when I, no conscious, <laughs> you know, so... You know, it was so many things I was juggling with. Like, I am not a gangster, <laughs> you know? And, uh, and I'm, naturally, I'm not a mad person, but something can bring the worst out of you. Mm. Yeah. Now, I believe May is Mental Health Awareness yeah. Month. And it, as somebody who has, you know, uh, spoken so eloquently and for so long about mental health issues, especially in the black community, why is it still such a taboo topic in our community? I think people just have too much to do, quite honestly. I think you got to work. You don't really have time to go to a therapist. You're trying to get rest. You're trying to stay strong. You know, it's happening in other ethnicities also. 
you know, in the Asian community, it's huge. It's a huge taboo of, you know, we do not see, seek help. Or you're definitely not going to tell your mom and dad you need help. The black community, you try to, you do it on your own. You know, I, I'm not too much uh, educated on the, on the white community, but I'm sure there's things there. And actually, it's probably not because more white Americans that I came in contact with, they would go seek help. They would seek It's therapy. not as much of a stigma, not as much I of think, and, um, you know, probably most com white communities right. as it is in ours. Right, right, right. I mean, for one, we don't even know the help is there. And, uh, yeah, that's Yeah, thing. that's a big part of it. And, yeah. the, and I think especially when you talk about, you know, black men and young black boys in particular, the impulse control and the anger issues are just right there bubbling at the surface. Even hearing you talk about your... yeah childhood about like so much of it was just like wanting to be you know seen and wanting to be heard yeah and that that's where a lot of the anger comes from yeah definitely uh when i was 13 my mom introduced me to a social worker so that's where i got lucky because I, I always knew i could fall back on seeking help i was never afraid to you know say yes i do need a therapist you know um but like if you're not exposed to that you're never going to know like that option is there because you have your parents if that don't work, you know, if you play basketball or baseball, you can go to your coach. Sometimes you got great coaches out there that'll, that'll talk to you, help you. You got your friends, but sometimes you have nothing. Some kids growing up fatherless and, and parentless and, you know, like, who, who do you talk to? Is it more challenging when you're a highly touted athlete? Like, people think you should have it all together. You're like, yeah. oh, you got money, you got stardom, you know, you, you're, you play for a great team, you win in championships. I mean, was did that make sort of your journey a little more difficult that people automatically assume that what what is Ron possibly unhappy about? Yeah. What is Metal World Peace possibly unhappy about? Yeah, I, I asked myself that question also. When I was 23, it was my mind was really clouded. So much questions and activity going on in my mind at that age. It was it was I wish people could really be in my head at that time. It was it was so uncomfortable. And then my teammates they would look at me like that, like, what are you unhappy about? Media, you know, um, they were right. Why are you unhappy? But um, nobody was really in my head like I was. And then on top of all the, on top of all the, like, um, stuff I inherited, like violence or dysfunction, as a kid, you still have your own insecurities also. So that, that haven't even been addressed yet. Every teenager is trying to figure out, okay, who am I? What am I going to be? You know, so it's like so many things I'm trying to juggle, you know, at that time. Now you, you said that, you know, kind of people, if people were inside your mind, they'd be like, what? What is happening yeah, here? Was, what were some of the thoughts that you were having around that time? Well, I never had suicidal thoughts. Mm -hmm. um, probably would have, I, I, I know for a fact I would have came out publicly and said I had suicidal thoughts if I had, because I'm always, <laughs> never had those, but it was everything like, it was good versus evil verse chill out you know i had like four different type of people you know that i'm like who the hell are you you know what what do you what do you want to be you know um I, I remember when i got to the nba i was giving scholarships to kids in high school i was back in the streets i was going things you know it, it was like so many things i wanted to do you know being 19 years old i was like two years removed from the streets so i, I still had this street mentality you know, and I had to quickly, like, my brother just did 10 years in jail for drug trafficking. You know, so my mind, your mind is in the hood. When you get some money, you know, you, you, you flip it. You know, if, you, if you're in a drug game or you think like a drug dealer, 
You take a grand, you take 10 grand, you flip it. Shit, 200 grand, oh my goodness. You can make a couple million on it, you know, but there was so many things going through my head that I had to um, get rid of. <laughs> you know, um, friends I had to chop off, like, not necessarily chop off, but listen, I'm not in that life. <laughs> so it was so many things I was dealing with at that time. Why do you think you were never attracted to, you know, getting into that life? Because, I mean, you, you grew up in Queensbridge, um, which is obviously one of the tougher neighborhoods in America. Um, so why was that never appealing to you? I never liked how, like, a crackhead would look smelly. You know, I'm like, I don't want to be like that, and I should be helping people like that. I mean, I was 13 years old. I remember seeing the crackheads come up and um, never, never, just never wanted that, that lifestyle. Now, I never wanted to be hands-on with that lifestyle. It was times I, was, I, was, I, I flirted with trying to get behind the scenes in that lifestyle. You know, but you know, it just it just wasn't for me. And then there was also times where I'm like, I want to help the community. How are you helping the community if you're selling community drugs? So I, I felt like this it wasn't for me, you know, to be a part of that lifestyle. Now all my friends is in that lifestyle, right? So it's like, do I do I cut them off as my friends or like no, we still my friends. When I went to when I got drafted, it was the tons of hustlers out in Washington D.C. I ordered two buses. All my friends was there. You know, so I was able to separate, like, this is me. I'm a ball player. <laughs> and y'all my friends. And we, you know, nothing can come around me. You know, no violence, no drugs, nothing like that. What was that like, though, being 19, 20 years old, millionaire, having all this at your disposal? <laughs> it was weird. <laughs> it was, you think things get better, but it don't. Mm. Yeah, you, yeah, you think things get better, but it's just not. It's just not the case, especially if you have no foundation, you have no morals, <laughs> you know. I had no morals, no integrity. Just like, you know, I, I still think that I didn't have. You know, I'm trying to develop it, and all the worst things came out. All the all the worst parts of me just started to come out. Worse or things I need to fix about myself. It just wasn't good. It just kept getting worse and worse and worse. You know, I want to talk uh, in particular, not just more about how you grew up, but about one person you grew up with, and that's Lamar Odom, who I know is a, a good friend of yours, and he's been through some personal struggles, yeah. obviously. But uh, we'll address that and more on the Lakers in general because yeah. uh, your former team is in trouble right I now. Know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> so uh, we'll talk about that and more after the break. All right, we're back uh, with more from Meta World Peace, who is kind enough to share his story, which I I think is one of the most incredible ones that we've ever seen in sports. And, um, you know, if you're not familiar with it, you can get real familiar with it because May 31st on Showtime documentary about his life, his background, his NBA career drops on Showtime called Quiet Storm. And yes, that is as in Mob Deep's yeah. Quiet Storm. <laughs> also one of Queen, Queensbridge finest and definitely one of my favorite uh, rap groups of all time. Um, before the break, we you know, we were talking about how you grew up and. Lamar Odom was one of the guys you grew up with. And I still cannot believe that on one AAU team, it was you, Elton Brand, and Lamar yeah. Odom. As we know, uh, he's had a lot of personal struggles, and we'll talk about those uh, you know, in a minute. But why don't you describe the kind of high school player or young player that Lamar Odom uh, was? Because a lot of people don't know like how ill that dude used to yeah. be. Lamar, I, the first time I played against Lamar, 
it was, he was on a team called Aim High. Aim High was funded by um, Kenny Smith. Kenny Smith's brother, Vincent Smith, was the best coach ever. And they also had a coach named Kevin Jackson. They had the best player on Lamar's team was Raheem Johnson. Raheem Johnson was Shea Cotton, Tracy McGrady. They was the best, right? Lamar was about 6'1 when I first played against him in Ravenswood Projects, the same projects where Dave East used to hang out as a little boy. Um, Lamar was about, I was an inch taller than Lamar. He was the point guard. And then all I know, all, one summer, Lamar grew six inches, still playing the point. Me and Lamar then joined teams. And he just kept growing, kept growing. And he was the one. Of, he was the best player, one of the best players that I ever seen. Now Elton Brand, when we joined forces, Elton was always the best on our team. I I thought he was the most well-rounded player, the most stable. <laughs> Elton's been. I don't even know how he did it, but uh, Elton, Elton was always the best. Lamar was always number two to me, and then I was always like three or four. We had Eric Barkley also, and Reggie Jesse. Wow, you had Eric Barkley too. Eric Barkley was oh on that team God. the whole time. We had a, we had an amazing team. That that was, it, it was that's phenomenal. Uh, and uh, Speedy Claxton. Jeez. It was it was it was just not uh, it was an NBA definitely an NBA team. Yeah, that's an NBA team in itself because of, of all and the Cotton, like and Shea Cotton, Shea Cotton yes. joined us for for, mm-hmm. for a summer. Yeah, one of the the uh, best high school Lamar players. Was, Lamar was just always so amazing. So you know, you guys were able to to play together and 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 win together. Um, yeah, and you know, obviously these last few years have been kind of tough for him. Um, yeah. So how did it feel for you? Uh, as his friend to see him, you know, go through, he had an overdose and all these personal struggles. Yeah, when he went through the overdose, I kind of didn't think, and I was mad at the Kardashians, quite honestly, because publicly it's easy to blame the Kardashians for everything that goes wrong. But we, I don't know, I'm not, I'm not in the Kardashians' house, you know. I, I did text Miss Jenner sometimes and Chloe. Because uh, he met Chloe at one of your parties. He met Chloe at my party. Yeah. Chloe, Chloe was hosting my party, mm-hmm. and, they, and then Lamar came, and that's where they met. And Chloe, she's always been great, you know. And I was like panicking because my friend's about to die. You know, I went to go see him at the hospital. He's in a coma, you know. And I'm just like, I'm sick to my stomach. I spoke to Elton Brand about it. Some people from Riverside Church, but you know, uh, me and Lamar kind of grew up similar, and we have our own demons you know, that we had to deal with. I later kind of realized that, you know, and kind of apologized, you know, to, to Chloe. And, um, for, you know, I was just so upset. Like, your friend is about to die. And all you could think of is, I only see Lamar on TV. So I'm thinking, like, maybe he's stressed. Is, is he trying to, is the fame getting to him? Is, uh, does, he want to, does he want too much? Why can't he just be normal, just coach? You know, just, you know, and I, all these things are going through my head. You know, and, you know, uh, but it's really good to see him back, back, back to life now. Yeah, and he's written um, a book himself yeah. about everything that he has gone through. It's a lot of juicy stuff in this book. Wow. <laughs> Some stuff that it's like, okay, did not know that you use wow. a prosthetic to pass a drug test wow. in the Olympics. So he really, you know, laid it out there. <laughs> That's like Lamar, Lamar's book is going to be, I can't, I can't wait to read Lamar's book. <laughs> yeah, it, it sounds like it's a lot of juicy material that's in it. And in addition to, I'm sure, some some life lessons. But, I mean, were you aware that he was struggling that way? You said you'd only really been seen on TV. Had you guys lost touch or? For me, like I said, in the NBA, it's pretty much the same when I was a kid. After we leave our games, I never went to the movies with Lamar or Elton. We play the games. We travel together. We tight. Practices. 
We hated each other. We had lots of fights and practices. We, me and Elton had a fight on a layup line on the same team before because we just got tired of each other. You know, um, so I never really had that time. You know, with, I would always go home to my friends, you know, my friends in my neighborhood. So I, I never knew Lamar. I, I didn't really, I didn't know how he grew up. I knew he lived with his auntie. I knew his dad was around. And we always had it going through our own struggles. Elton, his dad wasn't around. Elton used to have whole, big holes in his sneakers that he played with. I, I remember one time I had a hole in my shoe. Elton hole was bigger. And I'm like, you want my shoes? Because he was like, nah, I'm good. I'm just going to play with these ones. His toe was touching the floor. He was like 13 or 14 years old. So everybody was going through this they, they stuff. And then when I got to, to join Lamar as a teammate, I, st- I thought he was okay. I thought everything was fine. I didn't know, like, we're still searching. I'm still searching at 29 years old. Lamar was 20. He's only seven days older than me. You know, so he, I, I didn't take the time to think about, I wonder if Lamar was okay. Let's go get some lunch. Like, yo, what you been up to these last couple of years? So um, I, I kind of I wish I would have been more of a better friend from that aspect. So you, you said um, earlier in this podcast that you you never considered teammates as friends necessarily. But this seemed to be not something you developed, an attitude you developed as a professional, but like no, something yeah. you thought even in high school and maybe even younger. Where did that came mentality from, came from? came from Queensbridge. Mm. On Queensbridge, you play three-on-three, full-court, teammates with one person. When they're on the other side, you're not friends with them no more. You know, you go from passing them to ball to, you know, uh, hacking them because you don't want to get a layup. It, it, was, it was super competitive in my neighborhood. And, uh, you know, so we, we really, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't no friends. Our coaches never let us have friends <laughs> back in my neighborhood, you know. Um, Kevin Jackson. We had, some, we had some really great coaches in our neighborhood. But the intensity was always a high level. And then when you get to Riverside Church, like Dermot Player, you know, guys with high intensity. And it's just like, it's all about the game. There's no friends. You know, we out here to win, and that's it. Now, how, what's your relationship like with uh, Lamar now? You guys talk it's a cool. little more we, often? We, we, talk, we talk more than we used to talk. I talk more to Lamar maybe like four times a year. <laughs> you know, um, we just text. But that's more than we ever talked. I can't remember talking to Lamar during the NBA. Hmm. I can't remember. But when we seen each other, it's like, yo, that's like my brother. When you see him, what's good, you straight. You know, I know if I ever needed anything, I could call Lamar. If I'm ever sad, I can call Lamar. I can call Elton. Yo, I feel real bad. Sorry I didn't call you in 10 years, but yo, I need your help. I know 100%. I know 100% I can call those guys for anything. And they could do the same thing for me. When Lamar was going through his stuff, I mean, we, we, we had a room ready for him to come over to our house. You know, uh, and we told him, if you come over and, you know, but he was still going through his stuff. He had his friends, but we had a room ready. Like, we, we, we support each other. Now, well, when you got to the Lakers, was that still your mentality? I, only reason I ask is because it it seemed like you and Kobe were friends. Not in practice. <laughs> well, you, you know, you guys are kind of both wired the same way, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. We had lots of clashes in practice. Did you beat Kobe up in practice? Before? No, no fights. But I'm talking about like <laughs> physical, box out, okay. pushing in your face. But Phil would never let us play on opposite teams. So I got, noticed that from the doc is that you said you guys were always on the same, the same team. Become playing opposite teams. Yeah. Because it, 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 it would have been a fight. It would have been probably. too much. I think it would have been too much. Mm. Phil, we played, and there was times Kobe would want to go on the other team. Kobe did sometimes, but Phil would never let us go on the opposite teams. He wanted us to really build chemistry together. Now, you all seemed like oil and water, but you did seem to click, though, as teammates. I love, yeah. 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 What, what was it about your personalities or 
even the way you played basketball that clicked. I just love Kobe because like I felt like I was always the toughest guy. I was, I think I was the toughest mentally also, although I would always go off the edge a lot. But in terms of when you're fatigued, can you still go? Fatigue was not going to get me, you know. But in terms of working on my game, in terms of using skill at the end of games when it mattered or, or using skill more, I was always using effort, effort. Kobe used effort and skill. When I got with Kobe, I'm like, yeah, I work just as hard as him, but he has way more skill than me. And then when you see him at the gym at 6 in the morning, this guy at 5.30 in the morning, he's working on his skills. You know, and, and, I, and I really, um, I envied it and I admired it. So I grew so much appreciation for Kobe. And there was times when I would be on the floor with Kobe and I would just be watching him. And then I had to snap out of it because so many times I'm just in awe of what he's doing every night. And I'm like, wow, if I would have worked like this, I could have been like this guy. You know, um, he's the best. What do you think uh, Kobe learned from you? Man, I don't know. <laughs> Kobe, I, I don't think, maybe nothing. <laughs> you know, um, I don't know how Kobe thinks. But I think he learned. I think he, was, I think he was inspired by my defense. He came to me one day and was like, yo, can you come and teach me some defense? And I forgot. <laughs> you forgot to go and meet I him? I forgot to meet him about the defense. I remember because I never did it. He was like, I want you to, I want to get better defensively. Can you really teach me? And I'm like, come on, man. You know, this is some, this is some BS. What? You know, and by, so I never really, so I think he was really inspired by that. Um, you, you said that you guys used to have some memorable, you know, memorable practices. What, what's, when you think about some of the practices you guys used to have, what, what story or what <laughs> comes to mind? <laughs> For one, he was so good. I, honestly, I don't know who was better. I don't know. Stephen Curry is pretty amazing. I would love to see those guys against each other in practice. So Kobe would always be amazing at practice. The one clash we had was um, he got under my skin and said something like, you can't guard me. Anything like that going to get under my skin. And I'm just like, fuck out of here. And it wasn't just one fuck out of here. It was lots of them. It got to the point where Phil Jackson was just like, okay, Ronnie, that's enough. And I'm like, no, it's not enough to I say is enough. And this is um, only one person is new on this team. is me. Trevor Reese is gone. So I, I can't. In one practice, I, I disrupted the whole practice. Um, Phil had to uh, stop practice, I think, maybe. I was going at Phil, going at everyone. And I'm like, and I said one time, um, if y'all didn't get hurt, you know, we would have beat y'all, you know. And I'm like, we. I'm, not, I'm on the Lakers. I'm talking about we. I, so I, I'm in super like, fuck everybody. I, I don't fuck with you guys. <laughs> Um, all because Kobe was just like, he, 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 he could push my button. But then he was also able to, after practice, address it like, yo, good practice. And I'm like, yo, good so practice. So he seemed to appreciate that about you. He did. He did. And I appreciated that he let me be competitive. I appreciated that he let me, you know, just be myself. But then without Kobe, I wouldn't be a champion. Not because he led us there. I wouldn't be a champion because I was always the toughest guy. I, ne I never had anyone tougher than me in the locker room. You know, um, not to say Jermaine and Steve Jack isn't tougher, but I was always louder and way more, I guess, demanding, you know, and intense intensity was just always at an all-time high. Kobe was always, he was up here, you know. So, and he was like straight to the point, like, yo, don't fuck around. We're trying to win, you know, um, and I believed him, <laughs> 
you know, a little bit of fear. Like, this motherfucker's crazy. <laughs> For you to <laughs> say that? That's interesting. You know, I, <laughs> you just say that, given really, your competitive nature. Yeah. Yeah, that's I'm, a big compliment to him. I'm very appreciative of him. Because a game that I love, see, I didn't think I was going to be at a champion. Yeah, after that happened to Bro, I'm like, karma's a bitch. Like, it's over. I knew I, I am a champion. I knew I was the best. And I proved that in the NBA. At 23 years old, I was like top 10 already. You know? So I, I knew that. But... I didn't, like Jermaine said he didn't trust me. I didn't trust myself mentally. I'm like, there's no way I'm going to last. You know, um, and Kobe just like, I'm just so grateful for him in so many different ways. So uh, you all uh, beat the Celtics. Um, yeah. And it just seemed like, I don't know if Paul Pierce pissed in your cornflakes at one point <laughs> in his life yeah. or what happened, but you really couldn't stand Paul Pierce. What was and I know you said already yeah. that it's a lot of players that you had that kind of built up animosity toward as part of your competitive instinct. But mm -hmm. am I tripping by thinking like there was some some extra sauce when you played Paul Pierce? I think um with Paul, he was so good. And when somebody's that good, for me, I just couldn't I couldn't just put in the work and just get better and be the best like I was becoming. If somebody was better than me, I took it personal, and I'm like, fuck this guy. I don't like this guy. <laughs> only because he's like playing. He's an all-star, and that's the only reason. So I knew I had to get past Paul, you know, to be great. And it was like, I, there's no way I can like this guy. He's, he's in my way. He's in the East. He's a small forward. He's leading his team. I'm a small forward. I got to stop this guy, you know? Um, so, so, that we, so every game was competitive in the East, and then when we got to the— to the championship, he was a Celtic, I was a Laker. It, it was still there. It was still there. And then also, it also kept going in Sacramento when they had that great team in Sac um, 2008. And they beat us by 30 in, in Sacramento. You know, so all these things, like, you know, I'm like, I hate, I hate this guy. He's so good. That's the only reason I hate him. Let's talk about the current uh, state of the Lakers, a little bit in disarray. What's your take about everything that's happened? You have Magic, who's no longer there, him talking about Rob Palenka and some backstabbing. Yeah, yeah. They do have LeBron, which is an important piece to have, and some young talent. But right now, the Lakers seem really discombobulated. What's your take on well, what's happening there? I don't think the Lakers are discombobulated. Like, I think, so if, if, Magic, if Magic leaves, he's not there, the Lakers are still there. So maybe that relationship is discombobulated. But I don't think the Lakers are discombobulated. I think I think they're just like brushing it off their shoulders because they don't really have a chance to worry about what happened. Like they need to win next year. So I think right now the group that they have in there, um, I think they're happy. You know, um, and Magic wasn't happy. But I think that what they have there now, I'm not saying it's better but I'm, uh, but I'm saying they are aligned, you know, with each other. So you whatever know. tension was there is now gone. I so, think it's gone. And that you think will be very helpful for them. For the Lakers, yeah. yeah. For mm -hmm. the Lakers, yeah. Now, I, I wouldn't want to talk about anything personal because, like, I wasn't in those meetings. I did a couple things with the D League, with the G League, you know, but in terms of front office, I, I, I'm never there. I don't, I don't know anything about what happens in the front office. What um, you think that LeBron will be able to – win another title with the Lakers. So so I want to see LeBron win cuz I'm a huge I'm a huge fan. When when my brother did 10 years in jail for drug trafficking, LeBron step pops was in jail with my brother. Right? So I spoke to LeBron, LeBron step pops on the phone a couple of times. Whoa. So 
when when I was hearing about LeBron as a kid, I'm like, oh wow, this kid is dope. So I, I, I always knew about him. I met him when he was 15. He played. He was playing with the Bulls in the summer, you know, playing basketball. And he was. I was like, wow, this kid is amazing. So I always loved LeBron. I know his story and everything. Um, I want to see him win a title, but I just feel like Kevin Durant's going to win four in a row. Um, if he wins four, obviously. See, I think if Kevin Durant goes anywhere um, after they win it this year, I feel like if he goes to the Lakers or he goes to the Knicks, wherever he goes, he's going to win four in a row. I just feel like he's destined to win four in a row. So you feel like this is about to be the Kevin Durant era or time? That I he's... think it is. Mm. And so my, my last, last year, my prediction was Kevin Durant was coming to the Lakers because although I know he's going to win four in a row, I really want to see LeBron win another title. So if Kevin Durant's with the Knicks, he wins four in a row, LeBron doesn't win a title. So, so you a, you decided like I'm conflicted. <laughs> so you're like let's let's put Kevin Durant on the Lakers and then you don't have to worry yeah. about it. I don't mean to be like throwing shots at other teams. It's just I'm a fan. Yeah, I want to see LeBron win, and I, I would love to see Kevin win four in a row. So um, uh, you've defended LeBron a few times, yeah. more than a few. What about his game and maybe even the way you played him make makes him in that upper echelon? And some people yeah. are already. Saying that he's the, the greatest ever, I'm not willing to give him that yet. <laughs> yeah, it's but, so hard. It's so um, hard. You know what is it from a from your standpoint in guarding him? I mean, could you see this all like this yes. kid is about to be? You know, I mean, off the I, was, I was pretty good. I was 19 years old when I first played against LeBron. Mm -hmm. He was 15 years old. Okay, me, Michael and he's Jordan, probably about as big as you too. And and he wasn't as big, but he was big. Mm -hmm. He was bigger than Stockhouse and Finley. I was 240. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a heavy for a small forward at 19 years old. LeBron was about 225. He was heavier than those guys. So LeBron, Stackhouse, me, Antoine Walker, Finley, Jordan, Barkley, a bunch of other pros. LeBron was holding his own in there. He was posting up these guys. He couldn't post me up, but his speed when he would come full court, I couldn't really stop that. You know, I, had, I remember elbowing him in his chest. He was 15. And, you know, I don't care. If you're on the court, you're a man. <laughs> so... I remember LeBron coming full court at um, the gym we used to play at in Chicago. It was called, I forget the name of it. Um, and he kind of, I just elbowed him in the chest, like, sit your ass down. And um, he kept coming back. That was LeBron James. And I played against him again the next year. He was 16 years old. And you know, his rookie year um, with, with the Cavs, I was with Indiana. He has 25 points against me, the defensive player of the year. You know, LeBron, LeBron is, he, he was always tough. And I had some good games against him. But he had more good games against me. Now, um, aside from the the self the created animosity you would have against you know players in the league because they were better or they you know you were just in that defensive mindset. I mean, what were there players that you actually just like didn't like? <laughs> nobody I actually didn't like. Oh, uh, okay. nobody I actually didn't like. It was mm -hmm. some mirror. It was some mirror images of me. Um, mm -hmm. Rajah Bell. Um, yeah, because you guys used to get into it a lot. Yeah, yeah, he's a mirror image. Matt Harping. Um, Matt Harfrick. Yes, he was. I, I love Matt. Georgia Tech. Yeah, <laughs> there was a couple people I would go if I had to really go to war. It was a couple people I would go with. Matt Harper would be one. Wallace. What's Wallace? What's Wallace's first name? Not talking about Ben, right? No, Rasheed? not Ben Wallace. Not Rasheed. The other Wallace. Not um, Joe Wallace. Not Joe. What's his Wallace? Gerald Wallace. Gerald Wallace. Gerald right, Wallace. Okay. I like Gerald. Um, <laughs> people I like is people I hate. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> I like Gerald, Matt. Um, who else I like? There was a couple other. And then, uh, Kobe wasn't like me and Roger. Like, we was all like defense and stuff. But, you know, Kobe was tough. So you appreciated tough. like the defense 
lunch, like hard, tough nosed dudes. I appreciate like, people that didn't back down. Mm, okay. Yeah, I appreciate people that back down. I knew after my career, I can like really talk to them. Like, yo, I really love your game. But some people, you know, some people were like, they didn't want no parts. I was <laughs> they say, didn't want no parts. Are there, I was going to ask you that. Are there players now? Because I noticed this in some of some of the old heads, like, uh, you know, before Isaiah and Magic had their come to Jesus moment with each other <laughs> and other players, like they legit still hate each other. Yeah, yeah, like are yeah. there players that still hate you? I'm that- sure. <laughs> I'm sure because like it, I wasn't having fun out there. I know, and if you had like some nights, I can go and play and have an off night. Like I'm not playing tonight, whether I'm hungover or my body's sore, but I still play. Cause I'm not. I'm not worried about the intensity that somebody's coming at me with. But if you had an off night, and I'm and I'm on, you know, you're not ready. You're like you might not want to play tonight. And I've seen that happen a couple times. Some people took some DMPs. I've seen, some people took some, <laughs> I've seen that happen a couple times. Now, um, you've expressed a lot of interest in coaching. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I know you um, yes. worked in player development with the South Bay Lakers and the G yeah. League, as, as you mentioned. You know, why do you think you'd be a good, a good coach? You got to love coaching, for one. And I want to be a head coach. <laughs> right? And, and I'm, there's no disrespect to everybody who pay, pay their dues. But for one, when you see Kid, Fisher, Lou, Watson, when you see this happens, you're like, oh, well, I can do that too. So somebody got to uh, help you dream. You know, like when Michael Jordan played, I wanted to be like Michael Jordan. Now, now I want to be a coach. Like, oh, wow, they, they can do this right out of playing. I didn't know that can happen. So those guys created another dream for me. I would love to be a head coach. Now, people could question that. I don't have the experience. I have experience. I have a lot of one of one of the uh, things I can say is when when offensive teams used to have, uh, run plays against me, they used to have to make up offenses according to my individual defense because I was disrupting everything. So I've seen every single play, I've seen every single counter, <laughs> you know. So I have a lot of experience from that side. And then when I was my last few years with the Lakers, I coached uh, Palisades girls. Now it's not NBA, but we won back to back titles. I was assistant coach. You know, practice experience. I coached Beverly Hills, high school boys. I coached Palisades girls and boys while I was playing after practices. I coached uh, Hillcrest in Arizona, another prep school, high school. I was assistant coach there. I've been coaching my summer league team for five years um, in the Drew League, right? It's, it's more coaching experience. I currently oversee like maybe 20 coaches right now, uh, community coaches. And, I'm, and I currently have maybe like 200 players under me right now that I coach personally practices and uh mentoring watching film everything so i have more experience than a lot of people <laughs> that had, that came out the nba and got a head coaching job you know now you think you could uh coach somebody who was like you absolutely i, I saw i coach now i got the people i coach now from compton watts time bombs and we and we and we keep everything in perspective to keep everything in perspective, and I don't care who you are, you're not gonna walk over me, <laughs> and I'm gonna teach you, and you're gonna get better, you know, and we're gonna have fun. So I'm not saying that I'm not saying those ingredients are better than any one of these coaches in the NBA, nor am I saying I want anybody's job. I'm happy with doing what I'm doing now, I'm coaching all these kids. Uh, but if somebody was to call me and say, "Hey, we want you to coach," uh, anywhere, I'm, I'm there. Mm. I'm there. Because you, you threw your name in the ring for St. John's, St. Well, John's before they hired Mullen. The Knicks. Yeah, the Knicks. I didn't throw it in for the Lakers because it was too much happening. So I didn't want to come out and say I would coach the Lakers because it was too much happening 
and I didn't want to be a distraction, you know, to an organization that I truly love, you know. But yeah, I would, I would, I would definitely love to be a head coach. Well, I, I know one thing, coaching the kids. I don't think you really have to worry about um, a kid, you know, trying to challenge you. <laughs> I would hope they know the resume. Some of them do. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, do they not know the resume? Or but it's like <laughs> the challenge is great, you know. I, I, but as a coach, you can't go back and forth with your player. Like, oh, don't you say nothing to me? I, you know, it's not. It's not about that. It's about listening, and it's about understanding that player because every player is so different. You don't know what the player, what stress that player is bringing with him in practice or to a game. Mm-hmm. I, I love to coach the knucklehead kids. I personally like to help them uh, gain control, you know, of themselves. I have, uh, before we roll to the last and final segment, which I think you will appreciate, um, I had two questions for you. One, in terms of, uh, you know, coaching and, and all that you've done in, in basketball, well, really not coaching, but just sticking it to your playing career, you think you'll get inducted into the Hall of Fame? I'm glad you asked that because um, I would say up until the age of 23, it was no-brainer. <laughs> I was going. And then, you know, just, you know, um, just it just wasn't going after that. <laughs> you know, after the brawl, I gained a little bit of weight. But I was still averaging 20 a night. I was just playing on leftover stuff. Um, still got first-team all-defense. So, yeah, I think I should because – up until now, Kawhi Leonard is an amazing wing defender. It hasn't been one like me. Has not been. I mean, I was holding all stars. I, I held. I think like the trail once uh, playing with him twice. He had zero points to both games. So, mm. you know, I had Camelo two points one game. And no disrespect to these guys, I, I really don't want to. I don't want these guys to think like I'm calling them out. I'm you not. think you're a better defender than Kawhi is? It's hard to judge it at this point in time because, like, when I came in, all the best players was on the wing. Everybody was like Kawhi and Kobe. Stackhouse, Finley, Vashawn Leonard, um, <laughs> everybody on the wing was was dogs. So it's a different era. I think you know the the year when I held all small forwards to an average of six points. Like I don't know who did that. Now LeBron would have twenty five, but on average, when I got a small forward, it's you know an average six points. Like nobody was doing that. Holding all stars, you know, they would have their thirties, but then they would have seven. <laughs> Sometimes they have seven points, nine points, and I was doing that every night. So, you know. I would make an argument if Kawhi was here and if Draymond was here and we had film and tape, I would love to argue, but those guys can't defend themselves right now. But I definitely think Hall of Famer, I, I definitely think I should be a Hall of Famer just because, you know, defensive player of the year and champion, all-star, I guess I guess I got, I got, I got a little bit there. You think it's, it, I mean, for people, you know, who make those decisions, you think that the brawl is still being held against you? It's it's fine with me, mm-hmm. you know. Um, now, I'm not gonna say like I don't care what they think, but I really can't worry about how somebody's judging me on things I've been through, cause they you know they have they have no idea. Um, I, I feel like a Hall of Fame. I, I don't know what what's the criteria to be a Hall of Fame. You have to be a good person. Like, do you have to be a good basketball player? What what's the requirements? You know, um, maybe I don't meet some of those requirements. But as a player, definitely. I wasn't an Olympian, not because I didn't want to be. Uh, I really don't know any player in their prime that was 13 more NBA, defensive player of the year, all-star, that never got invited to the Olympics. I never got invited. It got to a point where I was waiting. I knew it was coming, you know? And I'm like, hold on, they really not calling. I called the office. I'm like, how does this process work? <laughs> you know, I'm like, and, and no response. I remember asking one time, could I try out? <laughs> no response. I couldn't even try out for the team. 
And usually they have the Olympians and they have the extra people for practice. I wanted to go into practicing. Carmelo was there, LeBron. I'm like, I'm taking somebody's spot as getting, I'm taking somebody's spot. I'm going to prove that I could take their spot every day in practice. Couldn't even get an invite. So that's one thing that's, you know, that, that maybe I don't get in. I wasn't an Olympian. I don't have a gold medal. But, you know, I would love to get in. I would, I would be honored to get in to the Hall of Fame. Even though, you know, as you said, Kawhi and uh, Draymond weren't here to defend themselves over who was the best defensive <laughs> player, neither will a group of or the multitude of rappers that come out of Queens. <laughs> and since that yeah, is, yeah, yeah. since that's your area, I'm yeah, going to need you yeah. to settle it once and for all. Who's the best rapper to come out of Queens? The best rapper to come out of Queens, I would say uh, Tragedy Gaddafi. Now, that was a name I did not expect yeah. to hear. Okay. Tra Tragedy See, Nas is amazing. Nas is the king. Nas is our big brother. Nas is our idol. Nas is our God. Nas is everything <laughs> to us. Tragedy birth Mob Deep. Tragedy birth CNN. Tragedy birthed a lot of people in the hood. Tragedy um, had publicly had issues with, you know, drugs. Um, he was um, a stick-up kid. So he was actually living those lyrics an amazing lyricist, but he never could get over the top. But was, was, was one of the best lyricists, you know, from Queensbridge. A lot of people believe that, but obviously Nas had so many more ingredients, you know, label, production, himself. His dad was an amazing musician. Um, marketing, everything. Tragedy didn't have that, you know, all those qualities. And Nas was a very, Nas is still very stable, <laughs> you know, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, which Tragedy didn't have. Mm, so not uh, not quite Mike Chatfield, huh? <laughs> well, Mike Chatfield was—he was a baller. Um, he wasn't a rapper, but Mike Chatfield. Yeah, I know he was—he was a yeah, baller. Yeah, yeah. Did you call it the best player you you've yeah, ever seen, or Mike, best Mike player was, you played against? Mike was probably the best player. Him and Kobe, you know, they, they remind me of, of each other. Um, and obviously, you got Stephen Curry, but Mike Chatfield, a long time ago, he would have been forty. You know, he passed away, but he was probably one of the best that I played against. Hmm. All right. Well, um, our final segment of the podcast is. One that, you know, I would like to think that you can kind of, you know, vibe with. It's called Fuck It, I'm Bothered, where you uh, used to bother a whole lot of people in the NBA yeah. um, with your defense and, and your tenacity for sure. So we'll be back in a moment. So as we do every episode of Jamel Hill is Unbothered, I'm closing it out with Fuck It, I'm Bothered, which is my <laughs> opportunity to get something off my chest, to relieve a little stress, which, Meta, you know that's important. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Okay. Because there are things that happen, both big and small, in this world that sometimes they just annoy you. And so I have to make these annoyances public. So Fuck It, I'm Bothered about... These two black reporters, Emerald Marie, and the other one's name is Lamar Dawson. They were two black reporters who were at the John Wick 3 premiere. And the you know public relations people, they of course, they're ushering in all these stars, Keanu Reeves, all the stars in the movie. And they get to Halle Berry. And they rush Halle Berry past pretty much the only two black reporters who are on the red carpet. But Halle Berry, in her infinite goodness... Uh, decides to ignore 
the public relations person and decides to talk to these only two black reporters there. So shout out and kudos to Halle Berry for sure for looking out for black journalists. But I'm bothered because I feel like uh, in the praise of Halle, of Halle Berry that we're forgetting something really important. Part of the reason why those black reporters are at the end of the red carpet is because the organizations at the front of the carpet don't have any people of color who are covering these type of events or covering mainstream entertainment journalism, period. And I'm glad that Hallie basically provided an example or a reminder to a lot of black celebrities, especially once they blow up and they get to Halle Berry status and they forget that a lot of these black media publications, a lot of black journalists who have been writing about them for years, talking about them for years, they helped put them on. All right. Before Halle Berry became Halle Berry, before she was leading off in uh, or was the leading Catwoman and a lot of the other roles and uh, that she's had and, and, you know, winning Oscars. She was covered in Ebony and Essence and a lot of other black publications. And what happens is they get forgotten when it comes to these events or just having black media a regular part of sort of the media coverage in general. So for me to see her do that is great. But I would like for the Hollywood reporters and the Vanity Fairs and these other organizations to address their horrible track record when it comes to diversity, because that's what we need. And also memo to all those other black celebrities out there. If you have a publicist, especially if you have a white publicist and black media talking to black journalists is not a regular part of your media coverage. When you have a, a new film drop, a new book drop, a new album drop, if you don't have black journalists that are in your circle then you need to question that publicist and you need to question yourself as to why you don't have black journalists covering you. Because if there's anybody who will understand why you resonate in your community, why you've become the force that you are, your background, why certain things or certain coverage or your story should be covered a certain way, it is black journalists and black media. So shout out to Holly Berry, but a shame on all those mainstream publications who have locked out black entertainment journalists because we need more on the red carpet. So that's my fuck it. I'm bothered. Ron, thank you so much. Ron Meta. I, I, I'm going to always yeah, call no, you Ron, funny. man. A anybody that's like, you know, no, of a certain age. <laughs> my, my, my wife don't call me Ron. My mama don't, I mean, my wife don't call me Meta. My mama don't call me Meta. They all call you Ron. They all call me Ron. That was my goal for this <laughs> whole podcast is to try to get through it without calling you Rod and I blew it at the very end <laughs> but look I just want to say I appreciate you um, this documentary is really really wonderful and more importantly um, documentary aside before it came out your you lending your voice to to mental health and I think it's really important especially because you're black and a black man and there's a lot of unresolved issues that black men have that they don't get to talk about in a safe space. And you're giving them the voice to talk about these issues and how to resolve conflict and how to deal with some of the anger that is not just based off how they grew up, but just society in general and how they perceive and depict black men all the time. So you are doing incredible work, regardless if you're in the Hall of Fame or not. Yeah. Just know that what you're doing now is so much more important in a lot of ways. So thank you for joining me. Now, it's really an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. And you know, I, I kept up with your work and what you stood for. And for people that don't have the voice or don't or have the voice but don't want to speak, you speak for a lot of people, including myself. Because like I told you earlier, I'm rebellious, but I'm not as uh, political um, in any way or form. But... Uh, you were speaking for me when you came out and you were speaking, you know, about certain things. So we appreciate you. 
Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify. And Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. 